brother. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of First uh, Samuel, chapter three. How many of y'all brought the old Bibles in today? A couple, couple, a couple of y'all paid attention last week. Uh, that's why I figured as I was working on the announcement this morning, I better give them one more week, one more week. So uh, make note of that in your phone and in a note, however you remind yourself of things that are important uh, to bring in a, a Bible next week. First uh, Samuel chapter three. If you'll turn there, I'll open up our time. Uh, in the word with a, with a time of prayer. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word, Lord. Without your word, we would be lost. And so we thank you that we have the word this morning, that we have it in its entirety, completed before us, the, the full word of God uh, that is meant to shape and transform our lives uh, as it points us to the word of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, Lord, this, this morning as we consider First uh, Samuel chapter 3, we pray, Lord, that you would speak uh, as you spoke to young Samuel there in the temple, there in the tabernacle, Father, Lord, that you would speak to us in a clearer, even more direct way. So, Father, Lord, we love you, we thank you, pray you help us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. This week, as I was reflecting on the passage before us, I remembered... Uh, an old commercial that used to be on TV. Now, for you young people, a commercial is a 30-second break between show in a show, right? I know YouTube and all this stuff. Um, a lot. Of my, my kids, by the way, one time we were watching a show uh, <clears throat> on TV. Where we, we primarily stream all of our things uh, that has no commercials. And a commercial came on, and my kids freaked out. They're like, Dad, turn the show back on. I'm like, listen, I wish I could. I wish I could. Uh, however, child, this is a commercial. Um, but I remember a specific commercial at play when I was younger, uh, the old Verizon commercials. You remember them? The commercials where Verizon wanted to show off the fact that they had a more superior network than AT&T, Sprint, and all the other uh, names that you may have. And they talked about, in those commercials, the key to their success is to never stop improving. Do you, do you remember these ads? The ads ran for a better part of a decade with the main line of the commercial being this. Can you hear me now? Good. Right, right the idea, for those of you who are unfamiliar with these commercials, is the test man, Verizon's test man, would then uh, go to multiple different places in the world uh, and far-reaching Safari Desert to uh, one, one commercial I looked up even this morning, coming up out of a drain pipe. Uh, and he says, can you hear me now? Good. And he pops in somewhere else. Can, can you hear me now? Good. Right, the, the emphasis of the, of the commercial being that, that Verizon had you covered. Like, you could go anywhere, make a call, and people would hear you. That's the, the emphasis of the, the commercial. Whether or not that's true remains to be seen and debated. You can talk all, all day about who is better. Uh, but for most of us, having access like this is something we've uh, come to know and love and enjoy. So much so that oftentimes when you're on the phone with someone and like maybe the line starts to break up and, and something, maybe they didn't hear you, you're like, well, obviously it's your phone. Obviously your network is the problem because my network is, is good. It's everywhere. Matter of fact, oftentimes we have to go somewhere kind of in a remote place to find somewhere where there isn't service. Now, maybe for some of you rural folks, you're like, yeah, right. Like try my, try my bedroom. It doesn't work there at all. 
But anyways, like most of us live in a world in which we are constantly fully connected and covered with cell phone coverage. Now, I was, I was talking to someone this morning um, about, about the, the millennial generation. And the millennial generation, I don't know if you know this, is the best generation to ever walk the face of the planet. You, you may disagree or... Uh, if you're a millennial, then you'll most likely agree. And here's why, because the millennial generation is the generation which grew up at, with a foot in both worlds, right? So some of you older folks grew up, became an adult, and never knew what a cell phone was, never knew what uh, a computer was or, or the intricate, intricate workings of how it was. For millennials, that's partly true, it's partly true. So I remember when uh, my very first cell phone uh, in high school, late high school, was a razor, a flip back phone. And, and, and so as I was becoming an adult, like the technology was uh, coming upon us, uh, the world was becoming smaller. Uh, but for the older generation, they grew up and already became adults without that kind of technology. Okay, so that's one reason why we're better than you, you older generation. Now listen, I love you. I'm still your pastor. Uh, so you have to love me back. So, uh, but the younger generation has grown up in a world where that's all they've ever known. Right? The, the younger generation will never have to worry about how long will it take to upload this file to the computer. Right? They'll, they'll never have to sit and listen to the AOL dial-up tone. You know what I'm saying? You older people know what I'm saying. Young people are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like, like, we've grown up in the generation, uh, or my generation has grown up with a foot in technology and a foot out of. We remember what it was like, uh, and yet we, we know the, the good that it can bring. Um, anyways, that's, that's not even in my notes. I just wanted to share that with you guys this morning, that my generation's the best. Uh, however, uh, as I was reading and thinking through 1 Samuel chapter 3 this week, it dawned on me that there's another type of coverage Another type of access which we have lived with, you and I have lived with, the entirety of our lives. The entirety of our lives. That access and that coverage uh, that, that I'm referring to is the access and coverage of the Word of God. Like you and I have never lived a day in our life without the coverage of the Word of the Lord. You and I have never lived a day in our lives where the word of the Lord was not speaking. Now, you may be, some of you might be quick and tempted to think that I don't think that's true at all. As a matter of fact, Pastor, have you read the news lately? It's all wild out there, and it's because people aren't listening to the word of the Lord, right? It's because the Lord is no longer working in our time. But what I hope to show you this morning from the text is that ever since the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ... The Lord has been speaking to the world in a way that he previously did not. And you and I have grown up and lived this entire, our entire lives in this world. Look with me here in, in verse uh, 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, we see days of silence. Look at verse 1, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Let me remind you where we left off the story last week. Eli has received from the word of the Lord 
and from a man of God who delivered that word, that Eli was coming under judgment. We, we, we pointed out last week that, that the, the word given to Eli, this, this word of God, this judgment of God, carries with it uh, the same themes and the same words uh, used of the Lord giving to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Right. So in the end of chapter 2, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that uh, Eli has just gotten word that the promises that God had previously made to him, namely that Eli's house would minister in the house of the Lord forever, was being revoked. This, of course, was the judgment of God on Eli, primarily for Eli's inability to restrain his sons in the temple. And the same kind of word of the Lord came to David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 with one major difference, right? Which is that even though David falls in the sin of Bathsheba, uh, he, he, he is not revoked of his promise from the Lord. Right, namely that promise from chapter seven of verse uh, uh, chapter seven of Second Samuel, where God promises that He will build His house and give a throne of power to David's line forever. So here we are. We pick this chapter up, this uh, chapter three here, uh, and we're picking it up from the failure of Eli as a father. He's failed as a priest, and he stands under the judgment. Of God, And then we come to verse 1 here where it says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. What this means then is that day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the people of God would come to the tabernacle, offer up their sacrifice, and return home. Listen, without ever receiving a word from the Lord. This means that by and large, the people of God were in a famine of knowing, now what? Where do we go from here, Lord? They had no word, no assurance, no, no word, no prophet, no, nothing was coming to them. There was no word of God. So you have to think, what Hannah promised in the, chapter 2, right, in her poem, in her song, she promised a few things that the Lord would do, right? And these are themes that are picked up from the Old Testament. Namely, that, that, that he will oppose the proud, he will exalt the humble. And so the people are left without a word from God saying, well, when is that going to happen? Lord, where are you in the midst of this crooked generation? How can we be sure that God is at work when all around us seems to be corruption, even within the supposed spiritual leaders of the temple. You see, these people no doubt had the writings of Moses. They had the writings of Joshua. And you say, well, isn't that a word from the Lord? Yeah, maybe, but here's the problem. All they found when they looked into the writings of Moses and they looked into the writings of Joshua, all they found were problems. Because it seems to them that they've only been delivered half the promises. Let me give you two examples, two issues that they had. The first is that God had promised to give the children of Israel this, this, this land, right? Not only land, but, but blessing and security in the land. God had promised to Abraham to give them a land of rest and a, and a land of blessing. However, in 1 Samuel, where 1 Samuel currently sits, is we have the people of God supposedly in the place of God's blessing, and all around them is not blessing, but rather constant threat from all of their enemies. So year by year, the people would wonder, what's next, Lord? 
What's, where are you at? This is supposed to be a land of blessing and all we find is a land of trouble. When will the Lord drive from us our enemies? It's a question they would have been asking. And all the while they heard back was nothing. Silence. The second problem that the children of Israel, the people of God, would have faced is that from the writings of Moses, they were supposed to be looking for a prophet to come. One who would be like Moses, but better. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall Listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak them to all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words and he shall speak that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of them. So if you were a good person of God, if you were a good Israelite, a good Hebrew child, what you were looking for constantly is someone to show up on the scene who looks and acts like Moses, who, who has the word of God in their mouth. So you see, when the writer says the word of the Lord was rare in those days, this should cause us to think, well, that prophet ain't showed up yet. He ain't here. Lives aren't being changed. The prophet, like Moses, has not shown up because uh, he will have the God's words in his mouth and he will speak to us all that God has commanded. And here we know that the children of Israel are left wondering, when? When, Lord? That's the sense of the first, first few verses of this text. Verse 2 and 3 show us a bit of the trouble in those days. Verse 2 shows us that Eli was blind and unable to see. And verse 3 tells us that the lamp was not yet gone out. Now, this is, uh, this is in Exodus. If you read of the temple construction, the tabernacle construction, you'll find that in the nighttime they were supposed to light these lamps and that, that they were supposed to stay lit. So, right, so what the author is saying here is saying that there Samuel is and the, the, the lampstand, the, the candle has not yet burned out. I think this has two meanings. The first is that obviously it's nighttime when this is happening. But I think more spiritual reading of this, a more perhaps a deeper reading of this text would show us that God is not yet done with his people. Right? You see, in the book of Revelation, we're told about seven lampstands, which the text then tells us those seven lampstands are pictures of churches and the text says that because people refuse to listen and obey God he will remove the lampstands right so you have this picture of light and then a picture of light being taken away in the book of Revelation this imagery of the absence of the lampstands in Revelation shows us that it is an absence of the presence and working of God so we read in our text this morning that the the lamp of God was not yet gone out we should read that as God has not yet left these people alone. This gives us a picture that in 1 Samuel chapter 3, these are dark days. People have more questions than answers. People seem to be living in the dark, always wondering, where's the Lord? When's he going to speak? When's this prophet going to show up? When will our enemies be driven from among us? Look at verse 4 with me. Here we see the call of Samuel. The Lord called Samuel and he said, Here am I. 
Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now this phrase, the word of the Lord, you'll see it there in um, in verse 1, but also in verse 7. This is the, the theme of the chapter, right? This is the theme and the thrust of the, what the author intends to show you. Mentioned three times, once at the beginning, in the middle, and then at the end. Making it clear that the central point of this chapter is revolving around the word of the Lord. And so then we see here that in verse 7, Samuel's got a big, bit of a problem. Look again with me at verse 7. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. If the dark days of the people of God are going to be solved, it will only be solved by a return to the word of the Lord. And we see that Samuel does not yet know the Lord. Right in, in this chapter, this is the same language used to describe Eli's sons in chapter 2 where he says Eli's sons were worthless because they did not know the Lord. Here, Samuel is said to, to not yet know the Lord, but the sense is given that Samuel's current predicament will not be his final state. We see in the second half of the verse, why? Why does Samuel not yet know the Lord? Look at the second half of that verse. It says the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is massively important and theological for us to understand, even today, that to not know the Lord is because the Lord has not yet revealed himself. That's what's going on here with Samuel. Samuel does not yet know the Lord, for the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Knowledge of God and of his word can only come from God opening our eyes, revealing to us by his word himself. As God reveals himself in his word, then lives become transformed. They begin to obey the commandments of God. They begin to listen and understand who this God is. Only once they've heard the word of God, right? You see, this isn't vice versa. It's not like if you want to know God's, you want to know who God is, then you've got to obey him, right? It's not that. But rather, as from knowing who God is, then we live transformed lives. Then we are able to obey. Hosea captured this uh, in, the book of, in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. What Hosea is saying that the knowledge of God leads to true faithfulness and steadfast love, not the other way around. Jesus, of course, shows up on the scene in the Gospels and says very similar things. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or the idea is that God is revealing himself. And in God revealing himself, what we find is a God of great mercy and great grace. And in this passage, Samuel thinks that Eli is calling him 
Right? He gets up three times, two times he gets up, three times he gets up, goes to Eli, and Eli's like, nah, it's not me. Right? This, is a, by the way, is a picture of Eli's spiritual blindness. Right? We're told that he's physically blind in verse 2, but we kind of know that he's already spiritually blind. He didn't recognize Hannah praying in chapter 1. He's unwilling to engage and restrain his sons in the temple in chapter 2. And in this chapter, he's physically blind, and it takes him three times before realizing, oh, this is the Lord at work. Eli himself is physically and spiritually blind. And so Samuel thinks uh, Eli is calling him because he does not yet know the voice of the Lord. But we see a change in this passage, don't we? In fact, we see that what God is doing here with Samuel is calling him up and into the role of prophet for his people. What we're finding in this, in this very chapter, this very passage, is Samuel begins to know the voice of the Lord. And the Lord is revealed to him. He's calling him to be a prophet for God's people. And this is done in three parts, the rest of this chapter. Uh, number one, God's word is given to Samuel. It's always the first part, right? You know uh, a prophet from God in the Old Testament because the word first comes from the Lord to the prophet. And then number two, God's prophet delivers God's word. And then we see the ultimate problem of this spiritual famine resolved at the end of the chapter. Look with me at verse 11. We see God's word given to Samuel. So Samuel says, Here am I, Lord, uh, uh, speak to your servant, for I am here. In verse, chapter, uh, and then verse 11, he says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, pause right there because the author has just told us in verse 1 that it's been a while since the Lord spoke. There's been no word of the Lord. It's rare in those days. And here we see the Lord speaking. And what's he speak? He speaks judgment. Judgment against Eli and Eli's family. He says in verse 11 that what he's about to do in Israel, everyone, everyone's ears will tingle when they hear it. What the Lord's about to do is great judgment on Eli and his family forever. But deeper than that, what we're seeing is that, that what God is going to do is he's going to replace Eli in the priestly role with Samuel in the prophet's role. You can kind of think, again, remember, these people were supposed to be looking for a prophet like Moses. And now here Samuel is being elevated to the role and function of prophet like Moses was. So the word of the Lord that is coming to Samuel in this passage is one of judgment for Eli. But what we'll find as this story progresses is it's, just not, it's not just a promise of judgment against Eli but rather a continuation of the story as God will bring forth a king in Saul and later in David. And David becomes the pointer to Christ. So God's word is given to Samuel here. But then we see that God's word is given by the prophet. Look at verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. It's like he gets the vision in the middle of the night. He just kind of lays there all night fearful. Oh my, 
Remember, he's been under the, pre- under the teaching and the raising of Eli for all of his life so far, from the time he was weaned from his mother uh, in chapter 1, delivered to Eli to be raised into the things of the Lord, and what he's just been told by the Lord. He's done. Eli is finished. He's, he's done. And so he's afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but verse 16, Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. This next line that he says is a line that gets repeated over and over throughout the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. He says, do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel receives the word and just laying there in bed. The text says he's fearful, afraid of what Eli will say. But after Eli tells him to reveal the word of the Lord to him, he's no longer afraid. As a matter of fact, he shares exactly what the Lord has revealed to him. But notice the response of Eli. He says, more or less, so be it. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, this delivering of God's word unashamedly and of receiving God's word without objection or resistance serves as a model of how people should listen and obey the Lord's word. You can contrast this with a lot of the Old Testament in the sense that many of the kings of Israel who will later come, they'll be addressed by the prophets in the Old Testament, will fail to do as Eli does here. And then sometimes we see even the prophets afraid to deliver God's Word. This becomes a model for how folks should interact with God's Word. And then finally, we see the resolution to the problem, the spiritual famine. Look at verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord again appeared At Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So here we see that Samuel now continues to grow in the Lord. The Lord is with him. None of his words will fall to the ground. He is no longer an unrecognized boy, but is recognized as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continues to appear at Shiloh, continues to reveal himself to Samuel through his word. You see, the problem that began this chapter of a spiritual famine of the lack of the word of God is now over. And this becomes important for then, of course, the rest of the story, because as we see in verse 1 of chapter, uh, chapter 4, it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Right, the, the words that the, that the Lord was giving to Samuel is now spreading amongst God's people, which is the role of the prophet. Now, in the beginning of this sermon, I stated that the central theme of this passage is indeed the word of God. And it's important for you and I to realize and that all the saints of the Old Testament were meant to live daily on God's word. Daily. So to be in a spiritual famine, to be as the children of Israel were in these days, were dark days. I also said that we, however, are in a very different situation than Samuel and the people of God in chapter 3. You see, one of the dangers of reading this chapter and trying to apply it to our lives today in Christ is that we can sometimes be tempted to say, yeah, we are just like Samuel, just like the children of Israel. 
We have no word of the Lord coming to us. And we need to return to God and seek again his face, right? And he will heal our land, right? Like if we read this chapter that way, then we miss the end of the story. You see, the end of the story, the people in, the, in Israel's day, in Samuel's day, they were looking for something to come and that thing has already come. The thing has already come. This is why I said in the beginning, you and I have never lived a day in our life like the children of Israel do in this chapter. We have never went a day in our lives without knowing the word of the Lord. The, Lord of the, word, the, the, the word of the Lord being present in our lives. Let me give you three reasons why, and then I'll be out your way. Number one, Jesus is the word. He, he is the word. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Right. John is very particularly using this word logos. Right. In the beginning was the logos, the word, because he wants his readers to know that the word of the Lord that came in the Old Testament has now come again. Only this time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 14 of the same chapter. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, and glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So you and I are not like the children of Israel in Samuel's day because we are not currently sitting around looking for a new vision or a new word from the Lord because Jesus is that word. Hebrews 1 that was already read this morning makes that clear. The author of Hebrews says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Samuel but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You say, well, pastor, I, I need a word from the Lord. I'm like, look to Jesus. He is the word. And of course, we only know the word of God. We only know Jesus as the word from number two, the scriptures are the word of God. He said, I, well, I thought, I thought you said Jesus was the word. Yes. And the scriptures are the word of God. Yes. Amen. This is what the Hebrews 4 says in verse 12. For the word of the Lord, uh, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? The, the word of God, like the scriptures, what we have in our Bibles is a living and active word for us. Jesus, when facing temptation with the devil in the wilderness, he didn't say, well, you know what, devil? I am the word. What did he say? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is breathed out by God 
profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Like we don't need another revelation of Jesus. We don't need another word from the Lord because Jesus is the word and the word is the word, right? The scriptures are the word of God which reveal to us Jesus as the word. Number three, we don't need another word from the Lord because preaching is God's word. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Preaching is God's word. This may sound a bit controversial if you've been in church for a while. Pastor, are you saying you don't say anything wrong? Of course not. Of course not. John Calvin, who uh, one of the great reformers of the church, this is what he said about preaching and preachers. He said, the preacher is but the mouth of God expounding what God says in his, in his word. This means that what, what, what Calvin believed about preaching and explaining and talking about and teaching this word, like that's the primary means by which you and I know God. That's the primary means by which you and I know the, 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 the Lord. And so this is the word of the Lord. Romans 10 says it like this, if you need a scripture. Chapter 10, verse 10 through 15. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone Preaching, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a sermon and, and the preacher begins to preach and you feel like this guy's talking directly to me? Anybody ever felt that way? Let me tell you something, a little, his, little, little behind the scenes action in the pulpit. I have no idea about that until you tell me. Okay, so you're like, Pastor, it felt like you were preaching Write to me. Like, I have no idea that that's what the Lord's doing, but he is. You see, what I'm saying is that the preaching of God's word is the means by which God intends to grow us as Christians. Right? We're no longer like sitting around waiting on a new vision, a new revelation of Jesus, because we have it. And therefore, in preaching God's word, listen, listen, this isn't just a pastor's role, by the way. You know that, right? Like, when you're talking to your unsaved friends and family and relatives and the people who live on your block and you say, hey, you know, uh, this is what the Lord's been doing in my life. Uh, based upon the scriptures, here's what I think about a thing. Like you realize that in that moment, you've become a preacher. You've become a prophet. You've become one who is telling and pointing others to the word through the word. You see what I'm saying? Like, so like, we don't need another revelation of God because you, in preaching the word of God, is what dispels the famine, the supposed famine. Like you and I have never lived a day in our life without coverage of the word of God. Therefore, what are we doing with it? Right? How do we apply this text of second, or 1 Samuel chapter 3? It's not as if we are Eli or even Samuel waiting for a word of the Lord. Rather, we should be like Israel at the end of the chapter who has heard the word 
they begin to grow excited. They begin to say, oh, this is what the Lord is doing. The Lord is at work because we know Jesus is the word. He is at work even now. Even now. I want to caveat that with this. A lot of times it feels as if we are in spiritual famine. But that spiritual famine is always, listen, always going to be self-inflicted. Because Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I will always be with you, uh, lo, even to the ends of the earth. So if we're in a, in a spiritual famine, right, and we're like, ah, I just feel like the Lord's not speaking to me, like, who's at fault? Right, who's at fault? Is Jesus a liar? Is he really not there? You see the difference in the, the contrasting, the comparison between us and the children of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 3 is the Lord is always with us. What they wanted, we have. This is why the authors of the New Testament would say, like, the, writer, the, the, the folks in the Old Testament would have loved to be us. Like, they looked with longing and anticipation, expectation for what the Lord would do in our day. And listen, here we are. Here we are. Therefore, we, we need to constantly be putting ourselves and refocusing our attention on Jesus. I guess in, in all of our conversations daily, I mentioned this last week, all of our conversations around the dinner table, at the office, everywhere, should uh, revolve around Jesus. Now, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean you get into a conversation like, you know, someone hits a foul ball at a, a ball game, you're like, hey, you know what happens? You hit a foul in life, you're going to hell. Don't do that, right? Like, you ever been in those conversations? It's like, it's like someone is like trying to throw the car in reverse going 70 down, the, down an interstate. It just doesn't, doesn't work. And yet we try to do that. We're like, oh, I got to get Jesus up in this conversation somehow. No, 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 no. Like, all of life is the Lord's. We are to live all of our lives, every moment of our days, in humble submission to the Lord for what he's done. This means people around our dinner table, people in the office, should see that we love the Lord, not because we're weird. Not because we're weird. But rather because we know what life is actually like. We know how God has actually designed the world. And we look and long for the day when fully God will do what he says he will do. Where he will exalt the humble and lower the proud. Where he will make crooked paths straight, ultimately no sin no death, no disease. And we look and knowing that because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, that day is coming. That right now we have no condemnation, Romans 5, 1, before the Lord. This changes everything about how we live and move and talk to people, how we do our jobs, how we work, right? You realize that because Jesus died on the cross, you and I don't have to lie. I think about it. Because Jesus died on the cross, there's never a moment in your life where you're going to be like, I should probably lie. It'd be better if I lie here. It's not true. Well, it'd be better if I just cover over my sin in this moment because uh, that will bring more honor and glory to Christ. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know, what will bring more glory to Jesus? You sinning and then trying to cover it up so that other people think that you love Jesus? Or you sinning being open and honest about that sin and confessing it to the Lord and to others and saying, you know what, like, I need God's grace in this moment. And I believe that because of what Jesus has done, that he loves me. He's covered for my sin. Like, he doesn't just love me, but he likes me 
even in the midst of sin. Like, that's going to bring more glory to God. That's going to bring more people in to saying, well, I want that. You see, this is what removes, the grace of God removes in our lives all need for lying, all need of covering our own sin, right? And we constantly admitting, right, the gospel and believing the gospel is a constant admitting to ourselves and to others that we can't do it. We need Jesus every moment. Wow, I messed up yesterday. Well, of course you did. Of course you did. He still loves you. He still wants you to run to him. That's the word that he's given us in Jesus Christ. The question is, do we believe it? Or are we spiritually starving ourselves of the word and of gathering with other people who believe in Jesus and wondering, well, the Lord's not here. He is. He is, church fam. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and love you for your word. We thank you and love you for Jesus whose work on the cross makes us have right standing with God and the, the, the work of the Spirit in our lives is conforming us even now in this moment through the preaching of God's Word more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that, Father. We thank you that we don't have to pretend. We don't have to run away when we sin, but we can run to you, Father. We, we thank you for that. Lord, we're thankful that we have a word from the Lord that weekly we get to gather uh, with other believers and to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would believe that this week. As we go about our way, we, we mill around and we enjoy life and we suffer and we uh, celebrate, Father, all the different things in our lives. And we would continually be bringing back our offering and pouring it to you and to other people. Father, we pray for, <clears throat> Lord, those who are sick uh, among us. We pray, Lord, that your hand of grace would be upon them even now. Uh, you would raise them up so that they would be a living testimony to the power of your right hand. Father, we pray for those who are spiritually sick and spiritually separated from you. Uh, Father, we pray you would be the one who opens blinded eyes. Even those who sit in this service this morning, that you would open their eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that they would turn and they would run to you, Father, and not away from. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would continue to feast on Jesus, to feast on his word throughout this week. Pray you help us with all this and more in Jesus' name. Amen.